You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to episode 50 of the Experiencing Data podcast. This is Brian T. O'Neill, your host. And my guest today is me again. Uh, I've been rolling a couple solo episodes if you've been following along the last couple of weeks. And I got enough positive feedback that people seem to be enjoying these. So I'll be doing them from time to time. We're still going to have guests uh, coming back. But for episode 50 here, I thought uh, we'd keep it solo and share some thoughts around innovation and creativity for people working with data and analytics. So these things don't always go together. And it kind of bums me out when I when I meet somebody that is very strong, technically very strong, analytical thinker, great technical skills, and they tend to think of themselves as not being creative. My favorite quote or my least favorite quote was was talking to a chief analytics officer recently, and he just said, Brian, we don't have a I don't have a creative bone in my body. And the main thing I wanted to talk to you today is about this kind of mental block here and what some of the tactical ways of actually practicing creative work and thinking about innovation from a a series of steps and activities and behaviors that you can actually do instead of thinking about it as this black box thing that that only resides in the minds of artists and creators and designers and things like this. So I think a lot of you know that part of my mission is really to help help people who think this way and who are very gifted and talented with their work with technology and data and, and analytics and, and, and data science to to tap into what human centered design can do and, and how it can help you deliver indispensable products and services to your customers. And and part of this, a lot of this is about the mental part of it, the way you approach the work, the, the way you think about your work in terms of problem finding versus problem solving, the role of empathy, which is really about putting ourselves in the service of others. And I really do mean that, that if we start to change the work from being a technical problem that's staring you in the face, it's kind of you versus it. And instead thinking about my job is to enable somebody else, like most of the software that we're all working on is not for ourselves. It's typically for somebody else. And so kind of getting that mind shift in place. But anyhow, I digress. Let's jump into this topic here around innovation and creativity. So I hope that you guys don't think of this as how do I say this? I don't want to be disparaging. I'm going to be throwing out stereotypes and generalities from the many conversations I have at conferences and just phone calls and research and trying to talk to people on my list and clients, et cetera. So these are very broad sweeping generalizations that I'm going to make. Some of you may may feel some similarity or they, you might this might resonate with you. Others, uh, maybe not so much, but everybody's unique. I've met plenty of skilled technologists who are also talented artists and musicians, especially around Boston. There's a great, great many of them. So without further ado, let, let's jump in a little bit here. The first thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this was that to reframe this, you know, know, as humans, as a race, we haven't been dealing with giant amounts of data and analytics that the world 
now puts out, you know, every single year, it's it's multiplying like crazy. You know, not even 100 years have we really been dealing with this kind of information. So what does it mean to not deal with it? Well, it means we made decisions and we lived without without having all the insights that we do today, which really reduces our guessing. Right. That's a lot of what we do is is we inform better decision making with all this data. We had to rely on trial and error and our gut and experimentation. We had to use other techniques. And one place I can see this getting in the way, just to give a very tactical example, was I had been consulting at a, a very well-known online travel uh, agency. We'll call them an OTA. And you know this company was relentlessly using A-B testing on their website. And I have no problem with A-B testing. It has a role, and it's a great technique for certain kinds of work. But this this company, a huge amount of the attention for the, for the overall product strategy and design strategy was on one screen was their hotel search screen. And, you know, this company was kind of gun shy when I arrived there and they were looking at the work that needed to be done as kind of optimizing this one screen to basically get people to type dates in for their travel and get back, you know, pricing from all the different operators and you know hotels, et cetera, that provide these travel services, hotel rooms and whatnot. And the vibe I got when I walked in the doors, I, I could tell the joy in the work was gone for a lot because in somewhat of a recent past, apparently there was a large scale redesign. It did not go well. And the company lost all uh, appetite to experiment beyond what they could immediately prove with data. And what this translated into was that they were constantly running these very small scale design changes uh, on the site and testing each one and, and trying to isolate, you know, change the color, change the button, move it over, change this text, very tactical approaches to things and optimizing. And again, there's a place for this with conversion. This is this is not new stuff. Many of you will probably know this if you if you're doing any type of web an analytics work. But the point here that I want to get across is that. This type of thinking where everything is analytically minded, even when you're doing design work like this, you're focusing on a local maximum, right? You're only going to get to the top of the peak that you can see right in front of you, but it's not going to tell you what the next big idea is, what the next big problem is to solve. It's just going to tell you of the choices that you throw at it, here's which one performed better, and you can keep optimizing down. And on top of this, what what can also happen, and this is what happened there, was that they started ruling out any changes that failed once would be thrown out. So what this means is, you know, if green background color on the button didn't work, then they will never use green on any buttons, regardless of what the label of the text of the button was, surrounding content, all these other variables that may have something to do with how the conversion worked. But But if you threw that idea out, forget ever presenting that idea again. It was now a forbidden choice. So this kind of approach where we're thinking analytically all the time about everything, this is not how we do innovative work. This is not how we find out what the next, the next big approach might be to solve the customer's problem. It's not even to help you see the problem really well. You're just going to keep iterating and refining on what's in front of you. And I think part of this is the mindset. And I understand uh, you, you, you know, conversions matter in this case, and it was a big part of it. And there's, you know, shareholders and all the whatnot. I get all that stuff. But as Peter Drucker famously said, you know, mar marketing and innovation, those are the only two things that really matter and everything else is a cost. So if you want to lead 
with the data work that you're doing and you want to be seen more as a center of excellence and innovation, if you want to find ways to leverage analytics and machine learning to create better customer experiences, whether that's an internal customer or supplier or employee, or whether you're talking about the people that buy the products and services you offer, you need to wear a different hat to do this kind of work. So be aware of these local maximums, be aware of when the analytical mind is kind of jumping to what the next choice might need to be here. The exercise of creativity, which hopefully leads us to innovation, which is what a lot of companies say they're looking for in their employees, it's a different kind of work and it's a different kind of thinking. And I know this can be hard that these words get thrown around a ton and I, I almost cringe talking about it just as much as some of you probably probably cringe a little bit at the idea of craft and design and, and some of these words that sound so fluffy and hand wavy. They're 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 so subjective. And I understand that I feel like innovation gets batted around quite a bit. Everybody says everything is innovative now and all of this. And it's a little bit eye rolly for me, too. I think that one of the reasons I really like design and I why I talk to you about design and why I want you to apply human centered design to your work is that it is a step by step process. It's something anybody can learn how to do. And it's a framework for innovative solutions. And it's something you can repeat and do regularly as part of your daily work to get better outcomes. Right. And that's what it's all about. We're, we're nobody wants machine learning. Nobody wants artificial intelligence. Nobody wants analytics, right? What they want are the outcomes. They want the value that they want the promise. What was the promise of these technologies? What was the service that they wanted to get? What was the outcome they wanted? It's outcomes, not outputs. So it's a different kind of thinking. And this stuff matters. And, and I'll tell you something else too. A, a recent study, this is just from 2020, came out. And what it looked at was what, what were the sources of innovation in companies. And apparently this study found that the explaining the innovation output at companies is five to 10 times more correlated to the ability of individual inventors at the company as compared to all the characteristics of the company they're actually working at combined. So people and the way they work and think you, that is for those of you that are primarily, you know, employees, full-time employees at companies, you are the source of innovation or you're not, but you, you have a multiplier effect if you are seen as someone that's doing innovative work. And if you're a leader, I'm hoping that you're fostering an environment to allow this type of work to happen. If you are in the product creation business, and again, whether you're at a technology company selling commercial software products or your data products are actually internal applications, services, models that are being deployed. I still call those data products, as many of you know by now, I think of them with a product mindset, even if we're not making money from them, because chances are they're there to save cost or potentially to improve the customer experience. There's some value there, right? And the ability to do this and to be innovative here uh, a lot of the output uh, at these companies is tied to the people doing the work. So how do you get started with this stuff, right? How, how do we do innovation? How do we practice this stuff? I was thinking about this and I, I, I was looking around to my own work that I've done with clients and, and a lot of people associate design with innovation because they realize that design can change their customer's experience. They understand how it can impact the business. 
they see what design led companies like Apple, they understand that there's something there, even if they don't know how to do it. So what I want to do is give you some practical stuff, take away the, you know, the, the black turtlenecks and the, the big reveals and some of the hype that goes with this and focus on the activities and the behaviors that you can practice on a regular basis, things that you could put into work at your company today. So let me jump into those. The first one is, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about leaders here, and I'm assuming most of the people listening here are leaders, or perhaps you're looking to be a, a leader in the future, and, and you're in charge of the ship, you're driving the ship, whether it's a product or a whole suite of products, an entire department, this is who I'm talking to, because a lot of these things can't happen without the proper management and leadership support. You need an environment to do this, and I know that's really hard if you're in one where it feels very close-minded. This can be difficult, but we can get into how maybe in another episode how an individual contributor might deal with some of these problems. But because you know my primary audience to serve are software leaders in data and product and technology and engineering. So, so the first one here is you have to create dedicated time to work on things that are not deadline driven and are not just about the latest fire drill. And I've seen this a lot probably more so the fire drill stuff with the technology companies where they're constantly chasing, you know, the, the, whatever the latest thing is, you know, big customer wants to come in and well, we'll only buy if we have this feature and the whole ship stops and everyone's now working on this other thing. And I get that sometimes that is the right thing to do, but if that's the only environment you're living in, forget about it. You're not the only way you're going to come up with something innovative is probably by luck. And I want you to have repeatable processes and repeatable behaviors because we can't rely on luck, you know, to to get us to the next mountain top, so to speak. Right. It's just not reliable. So. The next one here is beyond creating this dedicated time to work on these spaces, uh, to, to work on innovation and to think about projects and, and products and ideas that are not deadline driven and fire drill oriented is that you have to have the right people in the room in order to do this type of work. So what does that mean? Well, we hear a lot about diversity and I think diversity is really important here. And I'm not just talking about racial diversity, gender diversity, although I will say right now, simply adding some women to your team. And I, I happen to know just from looking at my podcast guests, the leaders in, in the data uh, kind of data products industry, machine learning analytics, it's a white male industry. And if you're only surrounded with people like you, you're not going to come up with stuff that's as interesting and creative and innovative if everybody in the room looks like you. So, but moving beyond gender and race, we're also talking about inviting outsiders, inviting customers, inviting resellers, inviting the sales team, the marketing team, subject matter experts. Why do we do this? Well, when we're thinking about the next level up, we need a volume of ideas. We need to get lots of different ideas not jumping into one solution, implementing technology, and then hoping that when we throw it at the customer, it's gonna work. And it's rare you see this happen because speed, 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 you hear it all the time. But that assumes that the cycle time is really fast. So I would say it's probably okay, you could probably get somewhere innovative if you can rapidly iterate, learn, change, ship, get feedback. If that cycle is really fast, by all means, feel free to keep shipping code. 
getting feedback, changing the design and the experience, and getting closer to what customers need. You can do it that way. That's okay. Very, very rarely is that the case, though. I find that, especially when you're talking about the next big problem that you want to work on and thinking about, you know, six months, 12 months down the road and not just to the next quarter and this type of thing, it's too hard to do this kind of stuff. And you still need a volume of ideas. And why do you need a volume of ideas? Well, part of the reason having a bunch of different people with a volume of ideas is not that it's not that one person's idea is going to necessarily be the right one. It's more about the fact that one idea might spawn someone else in the room coming up with an idea that's a spin on that, and you get this snowball effect. So you get the yes and kind of mentality. Yes, we could do that. And what if we also did this? Yes. And what if we could also do that? You need a breeding ground for that. And if we just come into the room with one or two ways of doing something and we're ready to jump into implementation, this is not how you do innovation. This is maybe you get something innovative once in a while, but again, that's relying on luck. So this divergent thinking, and this is something I practice and, and teach in my seminar. It's a very common thing in the design thinking process. It is sometimes called, I just call it design, but some people call it design thinking. But having a volume of ideas can really lead to creative ideas that no one individually in the room would have thought of, but the collective intelligence of the room can spawn some really interesting things. And we're bringing all these different perspectives. You, you have a customer service rep in the room. They're going to have a very different perspective on what, say, someone in product marketing or even product management might think who might have, you know, maybe they're relying on market research and they've bought research surveys and some of this kind of stuff to kind of think out what should we be doing with data in the future? And on the other end, you have someone that's, you know, dealing with customers on a regular basis. You know, if you're talking about like a, a B2C company or something and they're hearing daily from the actual people who are the recipient of all this work that's happening. And the point here is whether or not having a CSR in the room during your your ideation work here is the right person. The point here is that their perspectives are really different. And having a salesperson in the room, let's say you're at a tech company and having having a salesperson participate in some of this work, they also know what's what is difficult about communicating the value of the data and insights that we have. They are of super valuable uh, source of intelligence for the team that is responsible for designing the experience that the customer is going to have. And so CSRs, salespeople, marketers, product managers, designers, and of course the technologists as well, especially with the knowledge of what's possible. What do we need to do this kind of work? But it's really about wearing a different hat and realizing that it's time to take the implementation hat off and to think creatively and to think about volume. So if you wanna practice this idea, the way I would think about it is when you get this group of people together to work on a particular customer or business problem, make one of your first activities about generating a volume of ideas and try to separate ideas from the person who came up with them. It's not about who came up with it. It's not about owning the idea. It's about generating a volume of those ideas. So there's lots of different techniques for doing this, but the core of this is really at the quantity and not getting, not jumping into the quality of, of the idea or jumping into an implementation plan too soon.
The next one is open innovation. And I'm not going to talk too much about this because we have a great episode on the show. Steve Rader from NASA came on the show to talk about open innovation. But this is the act of looking outside of your company for solutions to problems that perhaps you've worked on a lot and you haven't gotten too far with them yet. But the the, the idea here is is kind of putting like almost like a for sale sign out like, hey, we have this problem. It's for sale. We need to invite people to come in here and tackle it. And this is something that's almost happening right now with, with, with at the time I'm recording this, you know, we're still in the middle of covid. Now they're calling it the third wave, uh, at least here in the United States. And so you actually have all these different people, all these different companies out there working on vaccines and PPE and analytics and insights and all this kind of stuff. Right. Imagine if your company had also put out that for sale sign and, and invited outsiders to come work on some of the problems that you have. A volume of ideas from people that maybe have don't even know so much about your particular industry, but may be able to approach a particular aspect or a particular part of the problem from a different perspective there. And it may be such that they don't necessarily solve it, but in the act of looking to outsiders to come and help you, you again may get an idea, it may plant a seed for what the actual path is that you should go on. But it, that seed might be something that never would have come out of your own team. And a lot of this is because we go native at some point, right? We, you get used to the way your company thinks, your team thinks, you know, and this happens a lot. We hire, you know, hiring, especially in, in, in data science and analytics teams, that there's so much hiring around technical skill set. And that that is, of course, really important. But you're going to end up being surrounded by people that tend to think the same way. And this is why I think teams that have product functions on them, they have a designer or user experience function on them with the data science and analytics and the engineering pieces there are more likely to come up with better solutions because they're all approaching the problem from different perspectives. And you really need to have that. So open innovation, check out the episode with Steve Rader from NASA on that. It was really fantastic. Great story in there about how how do you remove the excess grease from potato chips in the factory where they actually produce potato chips. This was a problem and this problem was actually outsourced. And it's fascinating to hear the way that they came up, the technology that they came up with to actually reduce the fat, the grease that that is on the chips at the time it's put into the bag. So check out that episode. Really great. The next one here is improvisation and empowering the group over the individual and, and this kind of idea of teams. So design is very much a team sport and the best designers out there are not the ones living in the tools, setting type, choosing colors, and all this stuff matters. These fine details matter. And I'm not saying they don't, but really what the best designers are doing is they are facilitating the team. They're facilitating the group coming up with a common framing of the problem and helping the team understand how the experience is very much tied to what the value is that is going to come out the other end of the technology initiative. This is true, whether it's analytics or advanced analytics, machine learning, whatever AI doesn't matter. So what is this role of improvisation? So I'm going to use an analogy here from jazz music. A bunch of you know that I'm also a professional musician and I do play jazz as well. And one of the things about improvisation in jazz, it's, it's not it's not just a total free for all. A lot of what it's about is exercising your individual creativity within a group 
who is there to support you and to allow you to take those leaps and to, you know, when you're when you're taking a solo and the band is backing you up, you're improvising there. You're trying out ideas live in the moment right now. And the team is not there to judge you. The team, the band is there to support the soloist. So there are loose structures here, but we're experimenting and are relying on the bandmates, our team, to support these expressions, these trials, these attempts. We're not there to sabotage each other. We're not to say, this is why I said we shouldn't have done with this idea, et cetera, et cetera. It's not about that. That doesn't help the customer infighting and the politics and all of this. If anything, we want to take a misstep or a mistake and turn it into something positive. We want to see how can I riff on that? How can I take that idea? Maybe that's not the right way to go, but how could we come up with something better here? And one of the things I like about this, this idea of improvisation and teams is the story about how there, there's a very famous pianist named Herbie Hancock, which maybe some of you have heard of. And he was playing on stage with Miles Davis, who is probably the most, maybe the most famous jazz trumpeter. He was alive in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And Herbie was at his early point in the band with Miles and he was comping, which means he's playing chords on the piano largely to support the soloist, which at the time was Miles. And Herbie played a, quote, wrong chord. He did not play the, the right chord at the right time in the song. And so instead of judging the chord as being wrong, what Miles did is he changed the notes he played while he was soloing. And by changing the notes in his solo, and adjusting them to the chord instead of expecting the chord to adjust to him, even though we tend to think of when the person is soloing in the ensemble, we're there to support them. They're not there to support us as much. That's exactly what Miles did, is he changed the notes to make Herbie's wrong chord sound right. And I think there's uh, analogies here to how we do work together in groups. And it's more about this idea of the risk taking here and trying to support the act of risk-taking together. Because ultimately, if you're not taking any risks and you're not ever taking some big swings and missing, and the company culture is not supporting these occasional misses and thinks that every increment of work that is done is supposed to create value, you're never gonna come up with something innovative. Because by definition, you have to try stuff and not everything is going to work. And this also gets a lot of lip service, but I find a lot of companies aren't willing to do this. A lot of them are so focused on the bottom line that they can't see beyond taking a big risk and, and realizing, you know what? We're probably gonna really make some people mad with this change we're about to roll off, but you know what? This is the right leap to make now, and we need to start looking a mile ahead instead of just looking a few yards ahead and taking those risks. And sometimes they're gonna be wrong, but sometimes they're gonna be right. So innovation doesn't happen if we're just doing incremental improvement work all the time. It's not going to happen. So get the team together, understanding that individuals in the team should be taking risks and the team should be supporting those risks and the team should be trying to take the ideas of the individuals and make them work towards the common good, towards the common problem we're trying to solve with this data and this technology. The next one is Fostering and creating and finding a company culture that allows for experimentation and failure. So I kind of talked about this right now, but I, I, I want to call it out as something distinct. You need to think about this as what I call reward the at-bats and not all the base hits, right? 
How many times did the team get up and take swings? How many swings did we take at this problem space? And have we even figured out what the right problem is, right? That, that's another thing is what game are we even playing? Have we clarified that on top of the how many at-bats has the team had? And, and there's a difference, right? In baseball, we tend to reward the points scored, the base hits and all of this. We're not rewarding the number of at-bats because there's going to be strikeouts. Well, I think you actually do need to have strikeouts here. And the point of the strikeout isn't to strike out. I mean, obviously, we would love to have more base hits. But the real point of it is, what did I learn from the pitches that were just thrown at me? What did I learn when I was at bat? What did the team learn when we went to bat and swung and we didn't connect? How fast are those learning cycles, the iterations that you're doing? Are they fast? Are we taking new information in and putting it through our brain grinder and spitting out something better at the next time we go up to the plate or are we just swinging the same thing all the time? So think about rewarding the number at bats. And, and I know you can't always do this all the time on all projects. There's not time to do this kind of work. But if you're not ever taking the time to do this kind of work, you're not going to come up with innovative solutions to things. You're just going to be focused on that local maximum, right? And the final one here is this is maybe a no duh for, for people that listen to this show, but practicing human-centered design or design thinking or just user experience design, for our purposes, they're all the same thing. And having this product mindset, this is the other piece. And, and when I say that product mindset, I'm talking to people doing applied data science, analytics work, and, and custom application work within non-software companies, but having the product mindset as if, you know what, this we're going to roll out this artificial intelligence, this model, it's going to change some of our operations. It could touch a whole bunch of different departments. And thinking about that as a product, as if you could sell that to another company that would have this problem. How much would you focus on the customer experience? How much would you care about whether the model did its job? How much would you think about the outcomes, right? That's the product mindset piece. The design piece, of course, is practicing these techniques. And there are step-by-step -step things you can do to implement design in your group, even if you don't have designers. And I'm not trying to turn everybody into a designer, but I actually think you already are if you're determining the solutions and the experiences that your customers are going to deal with. You are a designer. You just might not be a good one because your designs are byproducts of your technology work that you're doing. So the question is, do you want to get better at that intentionally? Right. That's the key word is, do you want to intentionally change the design instead of it kind of being a byproduct of the technology work that you're doing? So innovation can spawn from simply applying a human centered design process to the work that you and your teams are doing. Designers are accelerants for this. They are experts at this. They help make this process go faster. They help you take more of these swings and take these risks, and they help you develop a faster and deeper empathy for customers. They will pull you into this customer space and this mentality and thinking about relentlessly about who is supposed to receive the value here. And again, customers here may mean a paying customer. It could be an internal stakeholder, right? Uh, a report or a dashboard or some artifact, some output, those are still customers or users here. I'm, I'm using these terms broadly. So 
If you don't know how to do that, you know, a lot of you know, I have a self-guided video course on my website, as well as an instructor led seminar that I teach twice a year. Those are great places to learn. There's tons of free resources on how to practice these techniques. Of course, hiring staff or bringing expertise are other ways to accelerate this process. But the point here is you don't have to be a title designer to do this work. There's a lot of this work that is skill based. It can be taught to other people. And ultimately, I think that you know, my, my personal mission with this work is I want to see design happening in these places because today's data leaders and data science and analytics leaders more and more, especially as AI gets adopted, we or you all are going to have a big impact on the society and the world that we live in. And so I want to infect that work with design. I want you to practice design as you do the amazing technical work that you do I want you to use this as a way to make sure that you're serving the audience that you intended to serve ethically with trust, with user experience in mind, with usability in mind, with accessibility in mind. I want you to be able to do that. And there are ways to do that. So you again, you can get a demo of my course or, or seminar or go to any other place. The difference with my work is that I focused it for data practitioners, technical product managers and people that tend to think like we do, right? They live this world of data and trying to create new and innovative solutions with data. So those are my activities. Those are the behaviors I want you to go out and practice. This was episode 50. I wanted to give you something both actionable, but also kind of high level and strategic in terms of the mindset here. And whatever you do, beware of those local maximums. Don't try to be the individual hero. Remember that design is a team sport. It's not art. We're not we're not here for self-expression. Design is about serving others. It's about empathy and it's about having an impact. It's about creating an outcome, not just creating an output. Why does that matter? Because nobody wants data analytics, machine learning, artificial intelligence, software. That's not what they really want. They want to feel something. They want to change something. In our case, they usually want decision support, decision intelligence, actionable insights. Those are the outcomes. Help me make a decision. That's the game we're playing. So go out, take a bunch of swings. I hope you hit some base hits. Hope you hit some home runs. Good luck. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.